This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure that everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Association's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. This week on Our Voices, we're interviewing Judge Olympia Fay of the Denver County Court, a former attorney in the city of Denver, as well as district attorney in the 20th Judicial District. Judge Fay has always placed great emphasis on the dignity of each individual she interacts with. This has consistently earned her high praise from prosecutors and defendants alike for her demeanor and fairness. Judge Fay is active in several bar associations, including the CBA, the Sam Carey Bar, the Women's Bar, and the LGBT Bar. Judge Fay talks with our own Linda Moss and Mallory Revel about her powerful relationship with her family, the importance of diversity and representation in the courtroom, the value of mentorship, and her passion for what she describes as the best job in the world. Thank you, everyone, for joining us this afternoon for Our Voices. I'm Mallory Revel, criminal defense attorney with Foster Graham, Milstein, and Kalisher. I'm here with my co-host today. Hi, I'm Linda Moss. I'm a family law attorney with Sederosh Smith and Schellenberger. And we are thrilled that our guest today is Judge Olympia Fay of the Denver County Court. Welcome, Judge Fay. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're thrilled that you're here. So let's jump right in today. We want to talk about your story and your journey to the bench and what you're doing now and what you're doing next. So let's start with who were you? Tell us about Judge Faye growing up. Absolutely. So Judge Faye was originally Olympia Hankins <laughs> <laughs> growing up. And we could talk about the Faye part um, later on. But I grew up in Riviera Beach, Florida, which is a very beautiful place to be from, very close to the ocean. My high school, mm. the name was Suncoast Community High. Oh, nice. that's so lovely. So I grew up in a beautiful area surrounded by many family members. Um, my grandparents actually raised me. My parents were teenagers when I came along. So my grandparents were wonderful, and they allowed them to continue to be teenagers and grow up and have their youth, and they took on the responsibility of raising me. I didn't understand it at the time, but now I know as a parent that sacrifice that both of them made. Mm -hmm. My grandparents in taking care of me and making sure I had everything I need, and my parents understanding that their child was in a better place with the grandparents, that they could give me more than they could at the time. So Mm -hmm. I'm very appreciative of it now. It's something I didn't realize until I was an adult and a parent myself. So with my grandparents, they had 10 children of their own, and then they raised me. So I was surrounded by aunts and uncles and cousins, but I was a very shy child. I loved being around all of them, but Mm -hmm. I didn't like to talk a lot. Mm -hmm. I normally would just sit in the corner and listen to adults. I I enjoyed listening to adults more so than watching cartoons or playing imaginary anything. I just enjoyed listening to adults and reading. And they noticed that about me. And so even through school as this very shy person, they told me your confidence is in what you know because you Mm. read a lot and you understand. So I know it's hard. It's hard to speak up sometimes, but you have something to offer. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's me growing up as a kid, being in an environment of my grandparents, them supporting me with the limited education they had, but sure. understanding where my gift was and promoting and supporting and encouraging me in that way. So I went to uh, middle school and high school and I excelled at basketball. I received cool. a scholarship later on in college for basketball and mm-hmm. I also played the clarinet. So I stayed pretty busy with the marching band. Yeah. <laughs> marching band, a concert band, and then basketball. So Very nice. uh, that's me growing up in Riviera Beach, Florida. I went to Lenore Ryan University in North Carolina. My undergraduate school was the first time I had seen snow because Riviera Beach is <laughs> pretty far south. Yeah. You don't get any snow in Riviera Beach. So during my undergrad, I played basketball, and I, that's when my area of interest was always kind of in political science and law. Mm. And so that's what I got my undergraduate degree in those areas. And it was during that time I would come back and um, – intern at the state attorney's office in Palm Beach County. And so when I would intern there at, in the Crimes Against Children unit, that's when I fell in love with the courtroom. Mm. That's when it all started for me. I, Because I was younger, I would take these very young individuals that had um, sustained abuse that's beyond mm-hmm. any of our belief system um, that a child can endure, endure. And I would take them to the courtroom And Mm -hmm. I would show them where they were going to sit and where the person that hurt them was going to sit and where the judge was going to sit. And one time, the judge actually came out while I was showing this young person around the courtroom. And I just remember vividly how warm that person Mm -hmm. was and inviting. And you you see a judge and everyone straightens up. But I saw that human side, the humanity of what a judge should and could be. Mm -hmm. And I knew then that's what I want to do. Mm. When I grow up and get a degree (laughs) and go to and I'm going to go to law school, but I'm going to law school for the specific purpose of being a judge. So Mm -hmm. that's what I did when I eventually went to law school. But before between undergrad and law school, I spent four years living in Washington, D.C., And that was wonderful because I lived there and worked as a legislative analyst for Mayor Anthony Williams. I always kind of had this poli-sci law. I just love politics and everything, you know, related to the legislation, the politicians, and then also the courts, the three Mm -hmm. branches of government. So always um, into that. And so after four years of living in D.C., I went to the University of Denver, um, got my degree, and I actually started out at... um, a big 17th Street law firm, mm-hmm. Home Roberts and Owen, and then Davis Graham and Stubbs. Then I was a prosecutor, and then a city attorney, and then I became a judge. And that sounds like a lot in seven years, <laughs> one, because it is. But two, <laughs> I wanted to make sure that when I became a judge, I would have the experience of being a civil attorney and a criminal mm-hmm. attorney. Sure. So I could bring that balance to the courtroom immediately. So if um, I needed to be in civil, I can do it. Mm-hmm. Or if I needed to be in criminal, I had the experience. I could do that. And I wanted to do it very quickly. And I think because I had that experience after seven years of practice, I was appointed. I have so many questions. Okay, I yeah, know. I have so much information. So I have so many fun questions. First, what were your grandparents like? Other oh, than gosh. supportive and focused on education, what were they like? Okay, so my grandfather is no longer with us. But he taught me work ethic. He would get up every morning um, and take me to school and make sure I had lunch money. And he did this before he would go to work. 
I never saw him take a day off from being sick. And he was like, I'm going to my job, you're going to your job. Mm -hmm. And we both need to do well at our jobs Mm -hmm. because we want to have a home, we want to have food, (laughs) we want to have all of these things. So he um, was a man of not a lot of words, his actions. Mm. Um, and, And sometimes when I'm in the courtroom, I think about, I'm hearing you tell me a lot of things, but what you're showing me through yeah. your actions. So I, I've got that from my grandfather. I've heard yeah. you say yeah. that. <laughs> just, just, yeah. this, is, this is ringing a right, bell. Just, just an amazing <laughs> man. And my grandmother, I mean, like she's my compass. Like mm-hmm. she orients me to where I want to be, where I can be. She refocuses me. If I'm having a bad day, I pick up the phone and I call her. Mm. And um, she centers me. Like she, I think more than anyone else in my life has influenced me. Yeah. So I'm sure she knows that. And I'm sure that means everything to her. Did you ever talk to that judge again? I did not. I I wonder how that judge would feel knowing that that five, probably insignificant minutes or 10 or whatever it was in that judge's day shaped the rest of your life and career. That's really powerful. It is. I I go back to that courthouse, and it was so long ago. But I tell that story, and I I do it for a couple reasons to um, tell others about the impact just one person can have on your life. Mm -hmm. And so don't think you're ever insignificant of what you can do or what you can bring. And I I bring it with myself. That's why I try to get out Mm -hmm. because you never know. Like someone may be having that day and thinking that, I can never do this or I can never do that. And I can say, you know what? I was raised by my grandparents too. I get it. All of those things. And you can do whatever you want Mm -hmm. to do with hard work and dedication, um, just like I did. Yeah. And we were talking with our last guest about how much words matter. And sometimes we realize that they're mattering and other times you have no idea. But both words and actions can matter so much in a way that you may never know. Right. And I'm, I'm really curious, you were mentioning that you wanted to practice in both civil and criminal so that you would have that balance when you became a judge. When did it occur to you that that was important? And I ask from the perspective of being a family law attorney and knowing that lots of judges start in family law but may not have experience in family law. And so I think it's extremely valuable that you recognize the need for that diversity in your own experience to be an effective judge. So when did when did you realize that that was important? Probably um, when I was at Davis Graham and Stubbs that I realized that it was important. And, and I want to preface it and say important for me. Mm-hmm. I have many colleagues that do not have civil <laughs> experience and they're excellent judges. Sure. Um, I needed it for me because I'm all about kind of the preparation mm-hmm. and, and like lessening, about you. yeah, less, <laughs> like lessening my anxiety uh-huh. is preparation yeah. for me. So for me, I had to do the civil work and understand depositions, how that works, interrogatories, how that works, and how mm-hmm. you know, and how it plays out in the civil um, aspect in, in a case. But I also knew that I had to have that standing on your feet, speaking to a judge under fire experience as a criminal attorney. So that's why I needed that to feel prepared 
from when I sat in front of, uh, you know, litigants that, okay, I can recall that because I actually did that as an attorney and had mm-hmm. that area and that foundation. So I, I just needed it for me because mm-hmm. of my need to prepare and feel as comfortable with what I'm doing before I go into it. Sure. Um, I don't think it's necessary for everyone, though. I, I think it makes a lot of sense that, that you found that important. Oh, yeah. And as another anxious person, I also understand <laughs> <laughs> that need to prepare so much that you feel like you can handle anything. Some call it control, <laughs> but we call it prepare. <laughs> Preparation. <laughs> yes. So you had quite a few jobs in seven years, like I you did. mentioned, um, and they all served a purpose in your mm. career and your future. But looking back, which one was your favorite and why? Looking back, my favorite was when I was a deputy district attorney. I, you know, I was able to stand and if any of the attorneys are appearing in front of me now, hear this, you know, Olympia favor the people. Mm. And that's powerful. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted that responsibility. I wanted to be able to do that work. And again, I love a courtroom. So it, it just felt like home to me, just being back in home. I felt comfortable there. I felt that um, my skill set was demonstrated there. I felt like this is the place I was supposed to be. So that was my favorite job. And I was able to try cases. Mm -hmm. Um, The district attorney at that time, uh, Stan Garnett, he was from private practice. He took a chance on me because I was from private practice with no experience in the criminal (laughs) world, but for the criminal law and criminal procedure class that I had to take in law school. Which tell you everything. Right, exactly. No other experience. So he gave me a shot and I told him just truthfully he was like why are you coming here I was like honestly I looked at the PD's office and the DA's office (laughs) I just want to try cases Uh and he was like I'll let you try some cases so Uh (laughs) he uh, allowed me to come but that was my favorite job that's when I knew um or it was solidified I knew I wanted to be a judge because I knew what that impact would be Mm -hmm. and what I wanted to bring to that role but then at that job I was like okay strategic plan you need to fast forward this a bit so you can get there Mm because this is what you want to do so that was my favorite job Lee's favorite um I would say the end of my civil practice years um because I wanted to be in the courtroom and Mm -hmm. in private practice the resources are amazing Mm -hmm. um the mentors are wonderful and you get a lot from those firms but also there is a way to progress in those firms and that includes years and billable hours and I I wanted to be the partner at year four that wasn't (laughs) that wasn't happening so at the end of that time I had to realize you know what you need to leave private practice. You need to do some criminal work. That is a significant pay cut. Mm-hmm. You have a very young family at home. So just not just the work, but everything that came with that decision to leave private practice did make those years as fun. You just mentioned that being a DA solidified what you wanted to bring to the bench. Can you tell us a little bit about what you bring to the bench? Absolutely. So what I bring to the bench is someone that um, with my mother's side, no one went to college, Um, no one went to law school. So I bring that understanding of not knowing another 
lawyer or a judge or having that person as a family friend. So one of the things I knew that I could bring, especially when I was a deputy district attorney, is that kind of this system is for all. It's in in each role, all, Mm -hmm. not just in one position as a defendant or whatever that may be. I was the attorney. I was the one making recommendations on charges. I was the one making decisions on dismissing charges. So as a a deputy district attorney, I knew that that role as an attorney is also needed as a judge. Um, Again, the courtroom is a place where everyone needs to be treated equally. Um, And if you see the demographics of your bench reflecting the demographics of the people you serve, that just builds trust in the Mm -hmm. system. Yeah. So that's the impact I knew that I could bring. And I've heard you say many times that being a judge for the Denver County Court is the best job in the world. Tell us what's your favorite part or favorite parts, plural. Well, I can start with docket today. (laughs) So we are in a virtual docket world Mm -hmm. right now, understandably so. And what I, um, I miss is just that looking someone in um, their eyes and being able to see them and them see me seeing them mm-hmm. and, and just woman as one moment as a human being mm-hmm. we'll get we'll get to why you are here in just yeah. a moment <laughs> but we're going to start out with just good morning yeah. so what one of the things i love about that job is that i have the ability to show a person um, through the respect and the honor that a judge can bring that they are deserving of that as well. So I can do that um, every day, mm-hmm. every day. And also what I can also bring is kind of hopefulness. I mean, it may be odd to hear, but the hopefulness of tomorrow being a better day mm-hmm. for the person in front of me. Um, I, I often tell them that, um, you know what, I'm, I'm so happy to hear more about you as a person, because all I know about you is what I see of the offense, and I know you're more than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can bring that. So that's what I love about my job, just um, showing people maybe on their very worst day, they're fine, and they're going to get through it. So just today, those are the things. And it's a funny story. One woman, when I was taking the plea agreement, she said, and I was doing a little research about you, and I didn't know if she was talking about me or the other attorney. And she was like, and I just want to congratulate you. And I was like, oh, okay. Thank, thank you. <laughs> so, but that, I think that's kind of the environment that I've built that, you know what, I'm going to talk to you as an individual human being, not the defendant or the mm-hmm. accused. So um, I was happy that she felt comfortable. I didn't in the beginning. I was like, okay, that's a little creepy. But <laughs> but to see where it was going, and you know what? She was able to find information about me, and why wouldn't you? She's researching me because she wants to see what type of judge I am. Yeah. Uh-huh. There's, you know, <laughs> what's wrong with that? So just being able to talk to people, see them, give them hope, mm-hmm. and just talk them through a, a, a hiccup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, speed up, right? Which is all so powerful. I mean, having appeared in front of you, I don't know how many times defendants in particular would be coming or going and would just look around the courtroom and have a sense that this was different. This was different than everything that they've imagined court to be. It was a much 
a much safer place than they had imagined it to be. Whatever they done, whatever consequences they had to deal with, standing there in court was a safe place. And defendants used to comment on that, just coming and going constantly of what this courtroom is a different place, which is such a compliment. I'm curious to hear as well, because Mallory, in talking about you previously, has said that you have a great sense of, um, I think, gravitas, kind of. And so... <laughs> presence, <laughs> sure. I think, is my favorite Fine. word for Judge Faye. <laughs> she has presence. <laughs> yes. I mean, not to sound overly stiff, but that you, you have a, a great presence. And so I'm curious if you feel like you have kind of a, a judge hat and a hat that you wear as, you know, an everyday person, or do you feel like you're the same person on the bench that you are outside of court? I think they're very similar. Not the same, but very similar. And in the courtroom, there is some formality to oh, it sure. necessarily. So because I think that that formality leads to consistency and, can, and leads to understanding of what's happening procedurally. So if, if it's kind of, you know, in an everyday conversation, can you be here and there? In the courtroom, it can't be that way. It needs to be very yeah. precise, very consistent in a way. But when I say similar but not the same, in my everyday life, I just want to hear about people and their truth. And like that child of listening, I love to listen. So I bring that to the courtroom as well. I want people to not feel in fear because it is a very fearful environment. Mm -hmm. I, I never lose sight of there's a sheriff that can take someone away and place them into custody. And some people come in knowing that, and that's a weight that I've never felt. Mm -hmm. but I can see it. So I, I try to make it a an environment that I know all of these things are around you, but it's going to be us talking right now. And um, don't think you're immediately going to go into custody because you have a, a warrant, because there are things we can talk about. There, there are reasons why people may not show up for court, and, and, and it's not intentional, you know? Um, so when I say the formality, all of those things need to be said. It's kind of just to decrease the anxiety that a courtroom mm -hmm. brings. But I do believe that me being very consistent and being very formal in some ways kind of lessens that anxiety. In, in my everyday life, I, that's, I just want to hear about people in their lives. Yeah. I really do. So I think those are very similar. It also mm -hmm. builds trust, I think. That yeah. level of formality and consistency certainly builds trust. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to hear, you've mentioned previously that I think there were there were fewer women in practice um, earlier on in your career. Can you talk about what that was like uh, as a younger attorney and how that's changed over the years, if it has? And it has. I, I really believe, because I am a product of this, that um, you can only be what you can see. Mm -hmm. So when I didn't see anyone that looked like me in the role that I wanted to, I had to kind of look outside mm -hmm. of that place. So when I entered private practice and my first uh, law firm, there was one African-American woman that was a partner, one, um, and she had been there for 30 years. And um, wow. there were other women there. But when I was looking towards future and how to grow in that environment, the numbers were very low. In my second law firm, there weren't any. When I was a um, deputy district attorney, um, there were no African-American women on the benches that I, or the judges that I would be in. There were no African-American uh, women deputy di uh, district attorneys. There was one male. And so then I progressed to my city attorney's position, and there 
Um, once again, I'm the only one as an African-American woman in that position. So when I talk about kind of my experience of seeing um, you can only be what you see was very limited in mm-hmm. that way. So um, what I am happy to um, say now, there are three African-American women on the Denver County Court bench. So that kind of, I needed to um, go through that process and understanding kind of that loneliness mm-hmm. is what it is. It's, it's a loneliness and maybe even sometimes a, a feeling of this may not be for you mm-hmm. because there's no one else. Yeah. And, and I think that's very natural, a natural feeling to have and that has nothing to do with their confidence, but just what you see um, as well. So. Um, it was difficult. It was difficult to go through that, but I, I stayed on the path and I stayed strong because I had to change that cycle. I had to, you know, be on the bench so little girls can say, you know what, I can be that too. Mm-hmm, she yeah. looks like me. She looks my, like my cousin, my aunt, whatever it may be. So, yeah. And without having to jeopardize any current or previous relationships, did you ever feel like you got any impression from other attorneys or peers in the field that this wasn't for you because of who you were and your gender and your race, or was that mostly internalized feeling? No, it's not something I received from the attorneys that I uh, practiced with. It was just something I looked around and saw. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it did yeah. not. It was just. It was just a fact. Yeah, you know, I didn't think it had anything again with, to do with my confidence. It's, I was there because I was supposed to be. I went. Mm-hmm. I knew that I, I had the grades. I had everything yeah. that placed me exactly where I should be. But it was kind of that. Yes, I'm here, but the progress in it, what that looks like. What gives you the strength to stay and be that change? You know, for example, I grew up practicing law in Southern Missouri, and there were no women on the bench, no people of color on the bench, certainly no one that at least identified as LGBT on the bench, no one in my office that was a supervisor that looked like 80 of those folks. And I looked around and said, I see no one (laughs) that looks remotely like me. I'm out. And Mm. I just left and went and found it somewhere else where I could see myself. Um, How do you how do you stay? How do you be what you want to be? And so other people can see that. Well, I stay because I love my job. I love the role um, that I have. And while the cases, there's not a huge variety what changes are the people that appear in front of me and the attorneys that appear in front of me. So I get um, this new energy from new attorneys that's just starting out and want to do the right thing. So I'm re-energized in that way, and I I take certain leadership positions on the bench so I can look look at the bench collectively as opposed to just my courtroom and how this affects us all as Denver County Court judges, not just my isolated courtroom. So the new attorneys, um, some of the new issues that may come up, and then also taking on other leadership roles within the bench, that keeps me going. That keeps me staying. So mentorship, you just mentioned younger attorneys. Um, You started in Denver Municipal Court, then went on to Denver County Court. There's a pretty constant stream of brand new lawyers kind of coming through. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of mentorship and the things that you've done um, from the bench or otherwise to help kind of bring up those lawyers and help them reach their potential? It's just crucially important to have very good mentors as a young lawyer. There's so many landmines. There's so many that you can step into, and that's why you have to have that important that important person that one wants to protect you from the landmines and also wants 
to protect you from that judge up there <laughs> that, that cannot help you, but to a certain yeah. extent. So what I do um, when I have new attorneys, and they're all eager, they all mm-hmm. want to learn, which is great. So after a trial, after a motions hearing, I always make myself available to talk to them and also give them the cases that I rely on when I'm kind of doing the analysis and issuing my order. And then if they have a jury trial and they have questions, come back and talk to me. I can't tell them about how they try their case but as a judge what I saw the holes and I take about like I had a trial on yesterday take 25 Mm pages 25 pages of notes like I (laughs) I am taking notes and just putting little information in on you missed that objection Mm -hmm. wow or you know you said this here but you said that there that's an inconsistency the jury does hear that Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Which is invaluable. You, you know, so just that and um, just helping them. I tell all the new attorneys, um, I am here to help you be a better lawyer. So let me know what I can do to help you in that process. So um, as a judge, I can mentor them in that way. And mm-hmm. how am I improving? How am I doing? And just uh, carry them along the way. And then when they're like there, they move on. <laughs> so... <laughs> Unfortunately, that that is how it yeah. goes. But that's so invaluable. You've made the Denver, the young Denver legal community so much stronger for all those hours that you've put in of, like you said, going through the notes and saying, oof, you said that, you really shouldn't, you know. Oh. That is so helpful. The positive feedback, the criti- all of it is so helpful and does so much to better the young legal community. What do you recommend for young attorneys to do aside from talking to their judge after a hearing to hear about what they could have done differently as far as a larger scope of, I guess, mentorship or just general learning to become a better attorney? Well, I also talk to the attorneys of if you ever want to talk to the jurors, let me know, because mm-hmm. I, that's a different perspective mm-hmm. that they should they can get in. Jurors are willing to say, if, if I go back and tell my jurors, you know what, my attorneys, they're young, they're eager, they're smart, they're compassionate. They just want to get better. Do you, mean, do you mind spending a few minutes with them? Of course they will. And then the jurors can tell them, I didn't believe you when you said that. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. And, and then they can take that and they can use it and they can learn it. But I also tell them that, you know what, get involved. Practicing law is also about having relationships mm-hmm. with people. Mm-hmm. And um, it's harder when you are in kind of the public law realm because you are so busy, but it's important to get involved um, with different types of bar associations, even just to attend a few meetings because the, you, while you see yourself here, you may be somewhere else some other day. You need to know other people mm-hmm. in the legal community, and you can also find mentors that way as well. So get outside of your office join an organization or just um, go to a school just about these relationships because these relationships are vitally important throughout your career. So that's kind of the advice I give them outside of the courtroom, the things that they should be doing, things that you enjoy. Don't go do something like with the securities law group (laughs) if you don't have any interest in it. Don't do that. (laughs) You know, so... So going back a bit, will you tell us a little bit about your law school experience? Oh my gosh, I was just going to ask that. We're on the (laughs) same page, co-host. And did you like law school? Law school was a means to an end. (laughs) Alrighty, yep. (laughs) So I went to law school um, knowing that I wanted to become a judge (laughs) eventually. So I actually did quite a few internships and worked during law school. I... um, 
we got married during law school, my second year of law school in 2004. So I, like I was working, making money for a wedding at Fagri and Benson. So I was a case assistant at Fagri and Benson. Um, I started law school December, I'm sorry, August of 2003. By January 2004, I was working as a case assistant at Fagri and Benson. And from there, I just maintained employment. So I went to Fagri. I was at Home Robinson Owen as a summer associate and a law clerk. Wow. Um, oh. During um, law school as well, I um, was a judicial extern for Judge Wiley Daniel um, with the U.S. District Court here in Colorado. And I also interned at the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. So I stayed very busy during law school. Wow, clearly. Because I, when I became, I knew that I wanted to be a judge, but I was uncertain on where I wanted mm -hmm. to serve. Sure. So I had a lot of federal experience doing SEC type cases. Um, so I want, that's what the SEC and the U.S. District Court, but I also just wanted that law firm practice as well. So that's why I had the Fagri and the Home Robertson and Owen. Wow. What was it like getting married in the middle of all of that? Just, you know. Yeah, just chaos. <laughs> chaos. I mean, but let's see. We're 17 years later. We're doing great. We're doing great. <laughs> so. Perfect. I'm curious as to the actual experience of law school because you seem like someone who would create an extraordinarily detailed outline oh. for your classes. <laughs> yes. So I'm curious um, – I guess how that was for you was it did you find it to be stressful was it all just extremely organized to the point that it was kind of like methodical and not to say robotic but that you kind of just got through it all um or how was that for you? I had to actually, because, you know, law school is a lot about uh, a lot of studying, reading, outlining. I saw many of my um, classmates studying together, and I thought I was missing something from that. It, but I still remember, I'm that very shy child at, yeah. at heart. And so what I had to do was figure that part out. I think that was the hardest part. Uh, for me, for law school, these study groups, and you know, they were kind of, you get in this study group and all of these things and they share outlines. That didn't work for me. Sure. I mean, it seems like for someone who's not extremely social, that would just add a distracting element to the study right, process. But, but I didn't want to be missing out on right, something that right. I thought would be, you know, provided in those study groups. So the first year is just me trying to figure out like study group preparation and then personal per preparation. I was like, I'm not getting as much as I thought I would out of the study. So I had to figure that part out and realize that's that type of environment is social for me. That's not substantive. Right. <laughs> so, exactly. So that, and then when we were studying for the bar, I, I because I knew that about myself, my friends would say, you want to do flashcards together? No, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so that was the hard part of law school because we were all talking to each other, a bunch of people that have never gone to law school telling each other how law school is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so once I figured it out, I was like, they don't know. Yeah, just as I don't know. Yeah. yeah just, I don't know. <laughs> so that was the part of law school that I had to figure out. Yeah. Um, it was the most difficult part. How long did it take you to figure that out? I would say probably through my first year. Okay. Huh. Yeah, because yeah. I didn't want to miss anything that I thought the group would bring, but it's a collection of people that don't know a whole lot. So it's, <laughs> we really so, didn't know right, anything. Yeah, no, and we were able to kind of talk through and stuff that we missed, but I was still that 25-page note taker. Like I'm mm -hmm. writing down everything mm -hmm. yep. so because I would go back and review it, and then I would outline it. I would prepare for the test with, you know, all of those things. And I needed quiet 
to do that. So ultimately, you just had to decide that study groups were not for studying. They were for socializing. Yes. Will you join my study group? Yes, absolutely. For 30 minutes. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'll get one of the rooms by myself and finish up. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And then ultimately, you passed the bar. I did. I did. And um, it was interesting because I had already had the offer at the law firm. Mm -hmm. And I was um, having coffee. Um, with one of the partners, we were talking about a case that was going to help him on, and um, he's like, "Are you okay?" I was like, "Yes, I'm fine." We get our bar results, and I remember him saying, "Don't worry, our attorneys don't fail the bar." Ooh. And I was like, <laughs> "Well, okay." Oh. <laughs> and I went upstairs, and you know, the results came out, and I pat, and like all my other like first year uh, uh, friends are like cheering and happy, and he walks by, he's like, "Told you." Oh, wow. <laughs> Oof, what confidence. When I, when I was yeah. an intern, one of my first mentors, when I was waiting for bar results, was like, don't worry, I failed the first time. Oh, I was like, God. Oh. <laughs> Better or worse? Yeah. Right? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't think I had anyone to tell me what they thought I was going to do, and I kind of appreciate that. I know, now. right? You, see the, you hear these stories, you're like, oof. That's yeah. not great. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to mentorship, you gave me one of the best pieces of advice that anyone has given me in my career thus far, which is I can only ever be Mallory Revel. Oh, yeah. And you said that juries sense insincerity and they hate insincerity. And I'll never be, you know, David Beller, Lara Baker. I can only be Mallory Rebel. And that's something that I've always told myself and remembered. I think you mentioned this in I David probably, Beller's interview. Probably. <laughs> I mean, I talk about it all the time. Um, so that's made a huge impact on me. But can you talk a little bit about authenticity and why that's so important in both the courtroom and life? Because it's the truth. And in the courtroom... The essence of a jury trial is the truth-seeking process. At the end of it, the jury will decide what the truth was, what happened on that evening, and if they proved it or not. But it's all about truthfulness. And I think in the courtroom, it gives you the opportunity just to be yourself because they're advocates. You're advocating on a side because you believe in the truth of what has been said. So when you are not... um, sure of that I think people can pick up on it very quickly and then they become unsure of what you are saying to them so that's why it's so vitally important but it's hard it's hard to do because we've watched tv we've watched people that we're like I want to be just like that person but you're not that person that's not your skill set but I also think there's some beauty in when a person says you know what this is me and what I can do and what I can offer my truth is as good as anyone else's. So that's why I tell attorneys that. And it gives them kind of the relief of not trying to be someone else. Like you can, you are the best person at being you. No one else can do that. So, you, so take all of that away and try the case the way you want to try it. And in life, it's hard because we have so many uh, different opinions and criticisms and ways that we are supposed to perform or act and all of these other things that there's a lot of trying to pretend to do something that we probably should not (laughs) be trying to do (laughs) and it's a lot of work and it causes a lot of um, fearfulness and anxiety so once you're like you know what I can't do any of those things 
because I shouldn't be doing any of those things because it's not what I'm built to do. Mm-hmm. And I think once you get to that place again, I say it's, it's beautiful because that's when you see the truest essence of the person. So while you are obviously yourself and you've identified this one judge who you saw as kind of a role model of what being a judge could be, um, are there any other attorneys who have been role models for you? Well, I, one I saw when the prior interview, <laughs> um, but so many. So, and it's when you start listing names, you're going to miss yeah. some people. But I can tell you, not their names, but what they gave me. Mm-hmm. Early in my um, law school career, um, there was a judge that I reached out to and told him that I wanted to be a judge. And he said, I'm going to mentor you through this process. And he did it. So when you say you want to help someone um, and they actually do exactly what they say, that's an, uh, an amazing mentor. He's no longer with me now, but I just remember that kind of gift that mm-hmm. he gave to me. And, and even at the law firms, when I would go with to some with my concerns, the attorneys of color and saying, you know what, you've, you've made it this, this far, tell me the way. You know, a mentor that would tell me the truth about the realities of practicing Mm -hmm. in those types of firms and the longevity and what's happened in the past. So uh, a mentor that will tell you the truth Mm -hmm. about these are the sacrifices you're going to need to make and not try to make make it something that it's not, not try to make it, you know. um, No sugarcoating. Right, no sugarcoating. Just exact, if you want to be here, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And if you are not willing to do X, Y, and I love that, like directness, <laughs> X, Y, and Z, then you probably should look for something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a mentor that would be that direct with you. And then also, I serve on a bench. There are 18 of us, 14 are women. That's wonderful. So remarkable. And so, and we all mentor each other. It, it's a place that you can ask the question and I have to think about if you're going to ask like you know that processing that we do yeah. Yeah. should I ask the question what are they going to think about me none of that yeah. so you just ask the question you just ask yeah. the question and you get the answer without judgment from mm-hmm. a bunch of judges mm-hmm. you know and so <laughs> the mentors that kind of will be there for you no matter what and want and know that you're smart and you're all of these things so you don't have to go through that processing of just saying what you need to say so a uh, mentor that would just stay with me through the whole process, mentors that would just tell me the truth and be very brutally honest with me, and, and those that you can just share and be honest about your lack of knowledge and not feel like there's yeah. going to be something wrong Absolutely. Yeah. with that. Team yeah. mentoring. Yeah. yeah. I think that's extremely important, being able to ask questions without fear of judgment. Right. Yeah. So we're going to start to wind down, but I, I have to ask. So for the past 14, 14 months, um, you've had an experience that essentially no judges have had, um, maybe since, when was the Spanish flu, like 1918? 1918. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've had an experience that no one's had um, of being a judge in virtual court and all these things. What did that look like? What did your kind of day-to-day challenges, ups, downs, what did COVID look like being on the bench? 
COVID on the bench during a pandemic looks like me looking at my laptop (laughs) and the Uh camera in my laptop, no one else around me, Uh and talking to 40 to 60 people through that laptop in a virtual lobby when they're waiting patiently for their case to be called. What it has done for me as a judge, because in a courtroom, someone will walk in and an attorney will check them in, talk to them, tell them everything. That is now my responsibility. Mm -hmm. So when someone comes in, I tell them their charges. I find out what the offer is. I tell them what their options are because, but and this is something that I didn't do. I normally just got the result of yeah, all yeah. of the things that I'm saying now. So it, it's a lot of talking, um, which is fine. And But what it does also, it gives people access to justice in a way that they did not have before because you don't have to miss a work appointment or taking your child or if you're not feeling well enough you can still call in Mm -hmm. and you don't have a warrant so it's given us that but it's also given me kind of you're going to be talking for you know two to six hours depending on it and there you're not seeing these people in person they're over a phone and then some people unfortunately have technology issues or mm-hmm. they don't know how to unmute their phones or or all of these other things so it comes with a lot of interruptions but um most of all people are patient and but they can also go to work they can also take their kid and they don't have to take a day off mm-hmm. in the community that we serve there's a day off from work can be life changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now they don't have to do that. They can call in. You know, you can call a judge right? yeah. <laughs> and talk to the judge. Yeah. But there's there's something about the courtroom. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to getting back in. I've done two jury trials since um, we've been able to do so, and they've gone very well. So mm-hmm. it's nice. And I think uh, jurors have kind of this renewed sense of service and mm-hmm. their civil responsibilities, and they're all excited to be there and ready to serve. So that's what the virtual docket has done. (laughs) It's a lot of me explaining um, everyone's rights, but what it also uh, gives everyone on that line is that consistency Mm -hmm. with the charges and what the offer is and what I'm going to tell them that's going to happen. So they feel like, you know what, and maybe they feel like I'm just another one of those you know, in the line of people, but they also know that there's nothing inconsistent about their case than the others. Right. Absolutely. So what's next for you, Judge Faye? What's next for me? Um, I just want to continue to grow and be the judge that everyone deserves, you know? So just continuing to um, go to legal um, judicial conferences and just improve myself. It's the practice, as Judge Rell will say, the practice of judging. It doesn't stop. Like, there's improvements. And I just want again, to be that judge that everyone deserves. Um, so just improving myself in that way. I love my job. Like I want to retire being a judge. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah. wherever I can best serve and I, I just want to be the judge that's impactful and the judge that people deserve to have. Mm. Well, the community is lucky that that is your goal. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you. Um, okay. Well, thank you so much for being with us. It's been an utter pleasure to talk to you and someone who's so deeply passionate about their job so we really appreciate you coming here to talk to us thank you for having me thank you so much we so appreciate your time absolutely this has been our voices for more information on today's guests 
or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. This podcast is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Mario Trimble, Nicole Sparaza, Courtney Holm, Amy Lopez, Charles McGarvey, and Heather Folker. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our co-producers and editors are Courtney Holm and Nicole Sparaza. Communications director is Charles McGarvey. And this podcast is made possible with the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices.